I am beginning a new series of study from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, they say it is the shortest prophet in the Bible because he's only Nehi. Nehemiah, but it's not true. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Can I have a flash up? Yes. Uh, over this year, I'll be going through these 13 chapters. I did this series in 2007 when we first started the church. Uh, down in St. Stephen in Borwind. Uh, I'm going to revisit again as I begin to study and put some thoughts together. Uh, it's exciting. It's exciting. Anybody plow through this today or this week? If you haven't, I suggest you go home and read through this book of Nehemiah. It's an amazing book about him returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And I entitled this series called A Season to Build. Uh, part of the reason is because uh, we are in a season to build not just only our physical building, which we are going to do some work to it. We are submitted to the council and it's coming back. Uh, I hope there's not much objection and, and we see how we can kickstart the project pretty soon. In a few months' time, you begin to see some changes in this church, uh, not just only the physical building, but also the church as a whole. As we begin this process of a bit more more activities, we are amalgamating together and, and leadership and all that. So it's a season to build and I thought it's good to go through this book because Nehemiah faced a lot of challenges as he returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the church and there are a lot of lessons that we can learn together as a church. First service, second service, we'll be studying the same series of sermons together and so now our preaching assignment is synchronized. Whatever is first service is the same as second service as well. And I will just alternate with Pastor Bruce except some months that he's on leave as he's been away for he's going to be away for more frequently this year as well. And so we're, we're going to start this series. So before, before I read the text to you and I want to give you five points and I titled this time on uh, this, this first sermon on Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 on knowing how to pray. Because you're going to see Nehemiah teach us some very valuable lessons on the fundamental of our Christian faith, which is in prayer. And uh, I want to paint you the big picture. To those who have uh, attended my overview of the Bible, you remember there are nine words that can string the entire Old Testament together, right? Remember, those who attended my overview of the Bible, your creation, and then the patriarch, and then exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, and silence. Remember? And uh, this Nehemiah is in the context of the part of exile and returning. The Jewish people has a nation that got created and then they entered the promised land. They were ruled by judges. After they were ruled by judges, they were ruled by kings. And first king was King Saul, and then King David, King Solomon. After King Solomon, kingdom split into two. They went into exile because as a nation, they were not faithful to God. And therefore, God punished them and sent them into exile for how many years? Eh? 40. Wrong. Good try. 70 years. They were in exile for 70 years down to the dot. God said, only 70 years in exile and after 70 years, they were sent back. And why? Because Babylonian Empire was ruling and that time Babylonian Empire failed 
the new empire came out was Persian Empire and Persian Empire way of ruling are not that strict like the Babylonian but they allow them to function and return back to their countries just so long as they pay their tax and so they begin to return back God is not over with them yet God did not forsake his people he allowed the Persians to take over the Babylonians and he moved King Cyrus was a Persian king King Cyrus to make a decree to let some of the Jewish people return back to their homeland and in three stages over a period of 100 years they begin to dwindle slowly slowly returning back to Jerusalem led by first one uh, 50,000 Israelites went led by this guy called Zerubbabel and then Ezra also went along to rebuild the temple more the spiritual side and then the third stage was Nehemiah bringing another lot of people back to rebuild the wall because they are unprotected you know how long it takes for him to build a wall? You know, guess? 52 days. And you're going to see over the next 13 chapters a lot of opposition, a lot of discouragement. Just that anyone is in the business of building things, you will face a lot of challenges, a lot of discouragement, a lot of self doubt. And you see all that in Nehemiah. And that's why it's a very valuable lesson for us to learn together as a church as we build the church together. And if you want to read the book of Nehemiah, you must also read another two books in the minor prophet called Haggai and Zechariah. Alright? You can read Nehemiah as well as Zechariah and Haggai because God sent these two prophets to speak to the people, to encourage these people while they rebuild the world. They were so discouraged and Haggai and Zechariah is there to encourage them. And so here... Nehemiah tells his story in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, which is uh, the Persian king. Uh, and, and as I said, the, the Persian was to, they, they are quite happy to resettle captured people in their native lands, so long as they supported the state and paid their taxes. And so, uh, first chapter, I'm going to read to you the 11 verses here, and I want to give you five points for you to learn in the process of how to pray. You see that happening in Nehemiah's lives. So let me read to you the 11 verses first, all right? Remember in the exile time, uh, already two stages of people returning back to rebuild the war. Nehemiah always trying to find out what is, how is it happening, see what he can play, and this is in the context of that, okay? The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev. Kislev is in October. And it's very important because next lesson when I put out, when he appeared before the king, you will see another term which is not Kislev. It's another term which is some months later. In the month of Kislev, which is October, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susha, which is in Persian, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men because they went back first to help to rebuild and then they returned with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that has survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the, survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard this, Nehemiah said, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. 
not just only wept, he said, for some days I mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear, Lord, be attentive to your, and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Listen to me. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember, Lord, the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and you obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. This man meaning the king, okay? King Artaxerxes. Grant him, grant me this favor in the presence of this king. I was cupbearer to the king. Let me give you 5C. As I begin this uh, process of prayer, I, I believe we all can learn tremendous amount of application and relevance to us. So the first C I want to give to you, prayer begins with a concern about the problem. Prayer begins when you have a concern about the problem, concern about something. They say that the opposite of love is not hate, but the opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, the opposite of love is indifference. What is indifference? Indifference is like, um, who cares? You know? It's like, I, whatever, I, I don't care. You know? Whatever. You know? uh, I don't care. You know? That kind of indifference attitude. And they say that, that is the opposite of love. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is actually indifference. You just let it drift. You know, I don't care. Uh, Eli Weiser, a Jewish guy, you can listen to his, his address to the White House in 1999. And the title of his address is called The Perils of Indifference. Remember, he's a Jew. He suffered under the Holocaust and all that. And in that speech, he says this, okay? He says, he said, better an unjust God than an indifferent one. For us to be ignored by God was a harsher punishment than to be a victim of his anger. That means anything but indifference. Even an unjust God is better than an indifferent one. To tell that indifferent is such a terrible thing that you just have no more concern about anything in life. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah begins prayer by having a great concern. 
please remember that he's a cup bearer. You know what's a cup bearer? Cup bearer serve the king. He tastes the food first, the wine, the choice food. If everybody poison, he will be the first one to die first. He has intimate relationship with the king. He's a royalty. He lives in the palace. He is very comfortable. He doesn't need to be concerned about those people who return to, to Jerusalem. He is quite happy to be where he is. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah has great concern about his own people. Look at what he said. He, he said, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. Because it's the third time that they, twice they have been, been visiting. Uh, with some other men. And then he inquired, I questioned them. The question them is, what, what, what is the situation there? How, how is it that, like now, after you have been there for so many years, what is happening there? Could you fill me in? That I survived the exile and also about the Jerusalem. They said to me, and then this is the, the report that they received from Hanani to Nehemiah, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The phrase great trouble meant that the people had broken down and were falling to pieces. It's, it's a disgrace. You don't want to go back, man. It's a terrible place now. Oh, terrible. It's just a horrible place. They are in great trouble. They are disunited. They are, they are discouraged. They don't want to build. And then they've got no war protection over us. You know, this is a disgrace. You know, I, I won't go back anymore. I'm just sick of this, maybe. So he was in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and his gates have been burned with fire. In Cantonese, we say, Mongan no eyes to see. You know. It's so bad. You don't want to go, Nehemiah. It's so bad. But what did Nehemiah do when he heard all this? He sat down and he wept. He cried. He cried. And not just only he wept. He said, for some days, I actually It's almost like some loved one in your life has been taken away. You mourn. Two months ago, I attended a funeral. I don't know why this, it was uh, not uh, a high-end type of uh, funeral parlor. It was a very, very cheap one because the family was struggling. It was my Korean friend here. I mentioned his, uh, his brother-in-law died of pancreatic cancer. So they engaged a very cheap uh, parlor to do the the <coughs> funeral. And then when we were in uh, Springville, is it, is it? no, it's not. Uh, was it in Springville? I think so. We literally follow all the way to the crematorium, and and literally see the coffin enter the blazing fire. I don't know why we have to go through that. Um, usually there's a chapel. Maybe because they have to pay extra money to use the chapel. Usually the chapel will just see the coffin roll in and then that's it. You know. But for, for his wife to see the coffin go into the blazing flame, that kind of mourning is just unbearable. To see the way she mourned is just unbearable. To hear how she mourned and cried to see the coffin enter and get burned. 
your loved one. Your heart almost like got ripped open. Oh, unbelievable. Now I thought of it, I, my heart ached. And I, I think the word mourn is almost like that. And, and Nehemiah just sat down and wept. He said, for some days I mourned and I couldn't eat anything. He said, I have fasted. I, I have no appetite at all. I lost my appetite for food. When someone lost appetite for food, it means some, something is not right. Most people love to eat. He mourned and he prayed. So he has this great concern. And prayer begins with this concern about certain things. Whether it's your families, whether it's the church, whether it's the moral fiber of the society or your workplace, it begins with a great concern. But thankfully, it doesn't stop there. It moves on. Not just only he has concern about the problem, because if you just only lock into the concern about the problem, you can get into depression. Because the world problem is just too overwhelming. And he, had, he moved on to second C, which is the conviction about God's character. Not just only he has this concern, but he moves on. He lifts his spirit up a little bit because he has this great conviction of who God is. And which is one of the perspectives that we all need as a Christian. Otherwise, you'll be too overwhelmed with your concern. You need to be having this great conviction of who this God you worship. Look at what he turned. He turned now his concern into prayer to God. He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. How beautiful is that? It's not just only my problem, my concern. He said, God, the God of heaven, I may be under this king, other success, but you are God of heaven. You are above. You're not king on earth. You're God of heaven. All the kings of this world reports to you. The kingdom rise and fall. You are the one that's in control. He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And who is this God? Who keeps his covenant of love with those who keep who love him and keep his commandments you are the one who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments you have not abandoned us because we're going to turn around and obey you as a nation as a people you will not abandon us when we do that you promised that in Deuteronomy and Exodus before we enter into the, the, the nation into the land, in the possessed land. You give us all this through. Yes, we have failed you. We are in exile now. But we know that you are God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God, you are a great and awesome God. You are God of heaven. He has this great conviction of who God is. And when you have the great vision of who God is, as uh, Sarah prayed just now, everything pale into comparison. They say that when your problem is big, your God is small. But when your God is big, your problem is small. So your vision of God needs to expand. Your vision of God needs to expand. There's a story about uh, these two brothers who were 8 and 10 years old who were exceedingly mischievous. Whatever went wrong in the neighborhood, it turned out they had a hand in it. Their parents were at their wit's end trying to control them. 
Hearing about a priest nearby who worked with delinquent boys, the mother decided to ask the priest to talk to them. Many people think that pastor talk to people means it will fix the problem. But, but it doesn't happen that way. Uh, she went to the priest and made her request. Of course, he agreed. But he said that he wanted to see the, the younger boy first, the separate them. So the mother sent him to the priest. And the priest set the boy down and decided to make the boy realize that God was everywhere. That God was omnipresent. Omni means unlimited. He's, he's everywhere and could see everything he did. So he pointed his forefinger at the boy and said, where is God? The boy said nothing. Again, the priest pointed at the boy and asked, where is God? And the boy said nothing. And the third time, in a louder voice and firmer voice, the priest leaned far across the desk and put his forefinger almost to the boy's nose and asked, where is God? The boy panicked and ran all the way home Finding his older brother, he dragged him upstairs to their room where they usually plotted their mischief. And he finally said to his big brother, we are in big trouble. The older boy said, what do you mean we are in big trouble? He said, God is missing. And they think we did it. God is not missing. Let me assure you of that. Whatever your concern, whatever your problem, whatever you see the way the world moves, whatever that may be, God is not missing. God is very, very much sovereignly sitting on His throne and is in control. The word that Christians need to recover, the word is sovereign. God is a sovereign God. He is in charge. He is in control. We must have this great conviction in this God that we worship. Sometimes I fear that while church, uh, churches across the world, while we believe in a God, we are fast becoming a very, very much a humanistic institution. Everything about organizing, everything about planning, everything about you, 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 you. And, and we need a fine balance to have a little bit of leeway for God to intervene rather than just, it's not a humanistic institution. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Well, we need to plan, we need to strategize, we need to vision and all that kind of stuff. We must not entirely think that that is all, that is what we can do. I fear when people tell me, say, oh, without vision, you'll perish, you know. No, church won't perish. It's not us. God is always in control. He's in charge. He's in charge. And so the concern of problem lead to this great conviction of who God is. And therefore your concern becomes pale in the con comparison. And then when you approach a problem, it will become a more balanced approach. Concern lead to conviction of who God is. And the wonderful thing about Nehemiah is he begins to confess. He begins to confess. Because he is a great servant. He's a real humble servant of God. Look at what he said. Lead to confession. You must understand that when he begins to pray and confess, look at what he confessed first, and I'll read to you. He said, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Look at the word servant. He keeps using no, no, about five or six times in these 11 verses because he sees himself just as that. I'm your servant. I'm your servant. I'm your servant. 
I'm your servant. I'm at your call for duty. You know? uh, listen to the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. You must understand that the nation of Israel has abandoned God. They have forsaken God. Therefore, they have been punished and sent into exile at this time. But he didn't play a part. It was his forefathers that did that. But because he inherited this situation in exile, he never just played. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. You know, nowadays, a lot of people, when they go counselling, they always come down to the fact that, oh, because your parents didn't bring you up properly, and therefore they built up in them this resentment against parents, uh, uh, which is extremely unhealthy. They, they forgot that the parents don't have a good brought up as well. And how far do you want to go back? Michael Jackson will blame his father. Andre Agassi will blame his father. Despite the fact that they enjoy the fame that the father kind of instilled it upon them, you know. Uh, but not Nehemiah. Nehemiah will have this say, Lord, we confess. I represent the nation of Israel. I confess the sins we as a whole, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. And then he said, We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses before we entered into the promised land. Therefore, we abandoned you. We turned to Baal. We turned to idol worship, extra poles, and all that. Built a golden calf. Remember the story in Exodus? All that while they are in the desert. And as they enter into the promised land, they also do the same thing. And so Nehemiah knows that as a nation, they were experiencing God's judgment due to their sin. And therefore, he starts by confessing, Lord, have mercy on us as a nation. Have mercy on us as a nation. We have sinned against you, and I confess this to you. There's this humility that comes before God. And every problem in life comes from the fact that we have abandoned God. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian novelist who won the prize on Peace uh, Literature Prize in a Nobel Prize many years ago, and this is what he said. Someone who has been through the Russian Revolution and all that, this is what he says. He says Since I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of the Russian Revolution, and in the process, I've collected hundreds of personal testimonies, I've read hundreds of books, I've contributed eight volumes of my own pertaining to the country of Russia. But if I were asked today to formulate as precisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million Russians, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat the phrase, because men have forgotten God. What is more, if I were called upon to identify the principal trait of the entire 20th century, I would be unable to reflect anything more precise than this statement, men have forgotten God. And we can see that in China as well. The communists and, and the cultural revolution and all this because of such this men have forgotten God. And Nehemiah here, here this great concern turned into this great conviction about who God is begins to confess 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 before God about the sin of the nation that they are committed as well as their own 
individual sin. Because when you confess your sin before God, it puts you in the right frame of mind. Why? You no longer demand. You are pleading for mercy. When you confess, you're pleading for mercy. When you come before, because he acknowledged, God, actually, we in this situation, we deserve to be in exile. We deserve to be punished. We don't deserve your grace, mercy. We are in the very rightful place that we are supposed to be. And we are pleading for your mercy. It puts you in the correct frame of mind in prayer when we come before God. There's no more demanding. It's pleading for mercy. And when you are in that frame of mind, you are more willing to do God's will and not just do what you want with just wanting God to endorse what you want. You will have it in the right frame of mind when you begin with confession. And so here, uh, from great concern that, that Nehemiah has, he moved into great conviction of who God is and then by confessing on behalf of the people of the sin that they have committed, pleading for God's mercy to redeem their nation once again. The fourth point, he moved on to having confidence in God's promises. After he confessed, he bring back to what God says. He said, God, this is what you say. This is not what I say. This is what you say. And he moved to verses 8 and 10. You see it. He moved to this great confidence. His faith began to rise up once again, confident in this God. This is what he said in verse 8. He said, God, remember? Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses before we kind of move into the promised land or in the wilderness? Remember? He said, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. You said that, which is true. This is what's happening to us now, which is true. The first part has been fulfilled. But the second part, Lord, but you also say, Lord, if you return to me and obey my commands, then you said, even if your exiled people are, are at the Father's horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Lord, you say that. You promise us that. When we are unfaithful, we will be scattered in exile. But when we come back to you, you are going to gather us back. Lord, when? When are you going to go do that, Lord? He's looking to his promises and he's beginning to have this, his confidence begin to rise. Lord, you say that in your word. God, you say it. You say that when people come back, you will have mercy on us. When we obey you, you're going to gather us back again. And the nation of Israel, as we know, uh, depending on your uh, theological persuasion, uh, God is not finished with Israel yet. As a nation, whether to the scattered founding of the nation in 1948, uh, to in the future, uh, Jewish people and all that, uh, God is not finished with Israel yet as a nation. You can read that in, in Romans chapter 11. God is going to do mighty work there in the future before he, his return, the second coming of Christ uh, in the state of Jerusalem. And it's no, no accident why the capital now has been moved to Jerusalem. Uh, in, uh, Jerusalem as the capital of uh, the nation. It's no surprise. It's no accident 
that Donald Trump make that happen. You just watch, just watch the nation of Israel slowly. Things begin to unfold in the last days. So we begin to have this great confidence in God's promises. Can I encourage you at this point, just as a point of application, look at God's promises in the Bible. There are many, many God's promises in the Bible. Believe it. Believe that. So many. So many. Just, just read through the book of Philippians. There are so many of God's promises that you can remember. And my God shall supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That God will supply. God will provide. Claim upon His promise. And I've said it many times before. It's not so much on the promises. It's who is the promiser that makes the world of difference. Is it not true? Promises, you can promise anything to anyone. But who is the promiser? And in this incident, for Nehemiah, God, you said that. And because you are the one that says it, therefore, I can count on that. You are the promiser. Martin Luther King uh, Jr., uh, the great American uh, civil rights activist, uh, he said, despite harsh ordeals and near-death experiences, he said this. He said, I've been in more than 18 jail cells. I've come perilously close to death at the hands of demented Negro women. I've seen my home bombed three times. I've had to live every day under the threat of death. I've had many frustrating and bewildering nights. But I'm sure that God is going to take care of me. So today, I can face any man and any woman with my feet solidly placed on the ground and my head in the air. Because I know when you are right, God will fight your battle. He has this great confidence in God's promises. So the concern of problem lead to a great conviction of who God is that overflow to the right perspective in confessing, not demanding, Lord have mercy on us, I'm pleading for, for mercy, confessing, and then has this great confidence in what God say in His words, what He promised, and then finally, He rolled up His sleeve and they say, commitment to get involved. He begins to roll up his sleeve. He's beginning to think in his mind after all this prayer. What can I do? Is there something I can do? Knowing that they are in great trouble and they are in great disgrace. I mourn, I weep. Is there something I can do as a cupbearer? Is there something I can do in my own network, use my position to do something? He started to think. And you are going to see the next sermon I preach. It takes him few months of planning in his mind how to get involved. How to get involved. How to get involved. And when the opportunity strikes, because he doesn't know when the opportunity will be presented to him. And when the opportunity presented to him, he straight away, pam, tell exactly what he had planned to King Artaxerxes. Can you please do this for me? Can you please do this for me? Can you please do this for me? And God just blessed him. See what he prayed here at the start. I'm just preempting to you what actually happened. Look at what he prayed here. He said, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. I just want to honor you, that's all. Is there something I can do, your servant? 
Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, this king. What can I do? He said, I was a cupbearer to the king. He added, I was a cupbearer, I'm close to the king. I serve him, I, I put my life on the, the line, I taste his food, drink the wine, and all this kind of thing. If I die, I die first. You know, I'm a cupbearer to the king. Can I use my position to further, to use it to my advantage, to bless what's happening in Jerusalem? Grant, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of of this man what a beautiful prayer and Nehemiah started with prayer with a great concern towards the end he ended up with a great commitment can I do something can I do something with the position that I'm holding can I do something can I use my, my wealth my this state that I am to, to the advantage of God's kingdom can I do that can I do that and we have, in some sense, people with great connection and all that to further God's work, whether it is in raising funds, whether it's in a connection with, with counsel or knowing certain people that you can pull string and all that. Sometimes we need to use it to our advantage. We need to be shrewd. We cannot be cunning, but we are asked to be shrewd. There's a huge difference between cunning and shrewd because cunning has always an evil intent. But Christian, we are asked to be shrewd, as wise as a serpent, right? As innocent as a dove, and as wise or shrewd as a serpent. That's what we are asked to do. And so here, Nehemiah said, I'm going to do something. His prayer begins with concern, leading on to a great conviction in God, confessing, and then great uh, confidence in God's promise. And now he begins to roll up his sleeve and say, I can do something. God, please grant me success. Please grant me success. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. And you're going to see it. You can read it in advance. You're going to see it, how he begins his work and how God bless him, how God moves the king. Did you know that Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course where he pleases. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. So government leaders, king, is still under the control of God. And here, Nehemiah asked God to show him favor by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And Nehemiah's prayer was answered. You're going to see that God showed tremendous amount of favor to Nehemiah when he began to unpack his plan. And my conclusion to you is, can you do something too? This year, as we go through the season to build, uh, can you do something? Contribute a little bit, which I think most of us are. Can you think of ways that you can contribute to the church in this season of building? Whether it's in a building, whether it's in finance, we're still short about, about close to $400,000. Uh, can you possibly help us? Do you have some rich friend around that I can talk to, rich Christian who want to give some money away? Can you talk to me? I can talk to them and see whether they are happy to invest in kingdom work, even though it may not be your church. There are people who think kingdom. They are not necessarily thinking of church, which we all should think of kingdom rather 
than church. Did you know that when Crossway and big churches like here and, and City Life, when they built their church, you know what happened to these big churches? You may not know. When uh, Crossway were building the church, actually City Life collected offering and gave it to them. And did you know that when Crossway was building the church, City Life, the other way around, they also co collected the offering and gave it to them? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? To me, $400,000, if you can get 100 people to give $4,000 each, we cover it. Do I have 100 people to give $4,000? We cover it. We don't have to take loans. It is possible. It's all about numbers game. It's all about numbers game. Can you do something? Can you rub your sleeve to do, not necessarily in the area of finance, other areas of help, whether it's mainly music, whether it's play group, whether it's youth group, uh, there are many ministries, link pantry, you know, visitation of older folks, many, many things that we can do uh, to church. Let me just close with this. Is the, there's a poem called Little Things. Uh, little stones make big mountains. Little steps can cover mounds. Little acts of loving, kindness. You show kindness. Give the world its biggest smiles. Little words can soothe big troubles. This is a word of comfort. It's okay. It's alright. I'm here. Little words can soothe big troubles. Little hugs can dry big tears. Little candles can light the darkness. Little memories last for years. Little dreams can lead to greatness. Little victories can lead to success. It's the little things in life that brings the greatest happiness. Don't always wait for the big things. It's the little things, the everyday things that you go through, the chalk, that brings wonderful happiness in your life. Little things that we can use our gifts to serve the Lord. The beautiful prayers that Nehemiah has taught us. May we plow this book together this year and see how God can build this church together. Dear Lord, what a joy to study your words. Uh, thank you for the story of Nehemiah that has taught us about prayer. What a man. What a man with great concern of the things of God. But the song that we used to sing, Break, break My Heart, What Break Yours. A great concern. Many people no longer have concern. We are too self-centered. It's all about us. It's all about our needs being met. So we're coming to church, leading the church, make sure they meet their needs. Uh, we don't have concern for the things of God. But Nehemiah begins with concern that leads to this great conviction of who God is, that he does not fear, even though he has great concern, because he knows this great and awesome God. That leads to confession of sin, acknowledging that we are part of the problem and therefore come to you not with great demand but with great humility and asking for mercy because we rightly deserve what we re are receiving now 
and we are only pleading for mercy and for your favor, for your grace that leads to this great confidence in your promises and then make a commitment to you to play a part uh, while we are here on earth. Thank you, Lord. May you build your church. May your Spirit touch your church and stir our hearts that we can do mighty work for you. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. Uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing this beautiful song? Because Spirit touch your church. Lord, we need your grace and mercy. We need to pray like never before. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to open heaven's doors. Spirit touch your church, stir the hearts of men, revive us, Lord, with your passion once again. I want to care for others like Jesus cares for me. Let your rain fall upon me. Let your
uh, by touching our own heart. May you cause a revival in our own heart that we want to love Jesus more. Thank you, Lord, for this season that we can build. Thank you that you are sovereign God. You are in control. You always is a God who keeps your promises. May we lean on you. May we know that you can be counted on. And we know that you are in the equation. We have nothing to fear. Thank you, Lord. May you minister to each one of us who struggles with our own individual needs, trials. Some are going through severe trials in our lives with illness, sickness, uh, cancer, family problems, relationship struggles. Uh, Lord, may you minister to us. May you speak to us. May you revive us. Uh, fix our lives that we can be a part to build your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. May the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, the unconditional and the unfailing love of God and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit empower you now and forevermore. Amen.